We are continuing our series called Villains, looking at some of the, the, the bad characters in the Bible, because I think what is often our impulse when we hear about some of these characters is we, we push them off to the distance, and we don't really want to think about how we see them in ourselves. And then we'll learn about the, the, like the real significant characters and the great things, and honestly, even the, the heroes of the Bible aren't really all that heroic a lot of the time. But as we consider these villains over these last few, these last few weeks, I hope that you've gotten a chance to think about, like, where is it perhaps that I see this? And myself, because I think we all have things to learn from both the heroes and the villains of Scripture. And as I think about the villains of the New Testament, I can't help but think of a group that is constantly trying to trap and undermine Jesus, and that's the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Like, as you think about it, if you were listening to the story of Scripture read for the first time and looking through the Gospels, you might think, wow, these are some really bad people. And what is it they're always trying to do? Why are they trying to trip Jesus up? But really, we need to recognize but sometimes we can act in the exact same way. So there's a new genre of music, I would argue, over the last few years, especially that seems to have exploded, called diss tracks, where like some artist will say some bad thing about somebody else and put it to music, and then it becomes very popular. Like you can maybe think of a few, uh, like it was very clearly written about somebody else. And I was thinking about like what is the origin of that. And so I did some Googling about the history of, of diss tracks and found some interesting information. Like people have been like throwing shade, uh, they didn't use that term, but throwing shade back and forth to each other for, for a very long time. But there was an article written about a song that perhaps is the first diss track in history. In 1962, there was a, a soul singer named Joe Tex who wrote a song in response to a situation that had happened. Tex um, was married and his wife left him to begin dating the singer James Brown. After a time of them being together, James and Tex's uh, ex-wife, James Brown wrote a letter and said, hey, you can have your wife back. <laughs> I don't know how this all worked, but so Tex then wrote a song called You Keep Her. And you can imagine like the words that are in that song. A lot of times with our diss tracks today, it's like kind of veiled. And you're like, I think that's a, some thrown at that person. But no, he just very plainly says like, you keep her and right, like sings all about it. So I'd recommend checking that out on Spotify on the way home uh, because it's just like a very plain, like you can tell him the whole story and he just like lays it out there. So perhaps that's the, the origin of diss tracks when somebody had something hard to say to somebody else. When I think about that, I think about the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, which I would argue is just a series of, of disses that are leveled at religious people. Over and over again, he's saying things. There's 883 words in Matthew 23 in your English Bible that are hard words against the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So in Matthew 23, verses Verse 27, this is just one example, and there's so much in there. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look nice on the outside, but on the inside, they're full of the bones of the dead and everything that is unclean. So he says to these religious people, like, you guys are really good at doing some acts that perhaps make you feel a little bit better about yourself, that you're like kind of a whitewashed tomb. You're, you're doing these things which make you appear to think that you can do things a little bit better than other people. But let me tell you, in reality, your hearts aren't in the right place. On the inside, it's dead. And I see that, and I know it. 
And if you aren't a religious person and you're watching online or you're with us today, I'm so glad that you're here and you can just like point at us religious people and say, yeah, you guys are all messed up because this is what Jesus is doing. And think about that. Jesus has a chapter dedicated to saying like religious people, you got to be careful. Guard your heart. Think about what it is that you are in this whole thing for. What Jesus is trying to get them to do is have a different aim. The word Pharisee, which is a word to describe one of these groups that is constantly interacting and trying to undermine Jesus' ministry, it literally means to separate. So it was a group that said to themselves, like, we are going to try our best to separate ourselves from the rest of people with our actions. We're going to be so holy and righteous that we are going to separate ourselves with our actions. And actually, at times, Jesus says something nice about religious people. He says this in Matthew 5, 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying that there's ways that their righteousness gets it right. And actually, he's holding up this barometer to say, you all who are listening to this for the first time and then those who will hear this a long time later, like you're never going to be righteous on your own. You need God's work in your life. That's what he's trying to communicate. But he says on some level, there's a righteousness that they have. They've done some good things, but they're missing the point. And the Pharisees and other teachers of the law, I think, are building their religious acts off this understanding that comes from Psalm chapter 24, which says this, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from God and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek seek your face, God of Jacob. So in Psalm 24, uh, there's this understanding that this is who is going to get into deeper connection with God. Those who have clean hands and pure hearts. Those who follow the things that God has asked them to follow. Those who are taking steps to move in the direction of God. They will receive vindication. They will receive wholeness. What can start to develop as you have that mindset is you can start to think that you earn a sense of your salvation. And what you can start to believe in is the things that you're doing instead of the God behind the things. Because what makes you clean isn't the things you do. What makes you clean is God. Those things that you do, prayer and and participating in worship and doing the things that you feel like God has called you to do, serving the poor and the community, those things, they they matter and they make a difference and they help you like tune your heart more and more to God, but you can't worship the acts. So often it's easy as a religious person, I will admit this myself, it's easy to worship the, the forms and not the God behind the forms. And not to say, all right, God, I, I'm trying to seek you. The reason why I'm doing these things is because I'm, I'm seeking a living God. It's easy to come week after week after week, perhaps, to a church and to not let God actually change your life. 
to not recognize that as we gather together, we are worshiping a living God who cares about what you do on the way home and cares about who you are tomorrow. And in some ways, I think religious people can get this really wrong where we have these sets of behaviors that we do and at some level we have to analyze and say, okay, is this actually getting into my heart? Because when you have a group of people that are following like different rules, it's easy to have a mindset where you are focused only on what is outward and not what's going on on the inside. I always remember when I was in grad school, uh, the capstone of, of our time, we didn't write a thesis, but we had to write two different case studies and they were really complex and it was like way out of my league. And as far as writing these things, there were two 20-page papers where we had to analyze these specific cases that we got, and you had three months, and everybody was working in it together in the class. And then at the end, uh, you had to go and defend your perspective, you and two other students, against three professors, and it was terrifying. And I will always remember um, going through that experience and treating myself to a $5 footlong at the end because I was balling in grad school, and I just remember walking into that experience very, very nervous. And the, the group of us, it was all like we were, we were nervous about uh, what was going on and all that we were experiencing. And I will always remember a conversation that I had with a couple of my other classmates. Uh, I, it was one of those like out of body type moments. Um, the two guys were talking to me and they said, how many uh, sources do you have in your bibliography? And I was an out-of-body experience. I can tell you exactly who was there and in the library. I was like, I hope this is the nerdiest conversation of my life. Because that was like, I, I, never, I never want to get to this, this moment again. And just remember, like, this, this wouldn't make sense to anybody. We're comparing, like, how many sources we have in a bibliography. But when you have a group of people that are working towards the same thing, you can start to define yourself on really weird stuff that nobody else would really care about in the actual world. And I think this is what happens to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They, they really, they, they want to try to follow God with their lives. They want to experience a, a more powerful understanding of God's presence. And they become hyper-focused on actions to their detriment. In fact, we see... Paul, who starts off as Saul Austin, preached about him and did a great job in our villain series a few weeks ago, which I would recommend checking out. He shares what he would have considered like his resume basically before he meets Jesus. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So he shares these things. These are the things that, you know, in my previous life, I would have leaned on and said, this is what makes me special to God and significant. And most of that stuff, we go, yeah, okay, I, I could see some significance there. But one that's in there is persecuting the church. Like, he was so concerned about the new movement and what Jesus was meaning to these new groups of people. He was so concerned as a very good, devoted Jewish follower that he was persecuting early Christians. And that's where I think it's easy for us to recognize that that goes a little bit too far, right? But it's so easy if you're so focused and thinking about actions and outward appearance and doing all of this stuff to just end up in a space that at the very beginning perhaps you know like isn't what you should be doing. 
But it just takes a few steps to get there. N.T. Wright, the great New Testament scholar, says about him, uh, Saul of Tarsus, from the point of view of Saul of Tarsus, the first followers of Jesus of Nazareth were the prime example of the deviant behavior that had to be eradicated if Israel's God was to be honored. Saul of Tarsus was therefore zealous, his term, indicating actual violence, not just strong emotion, persecuting these people. Everything possible had to be done to stamp out a movement that would impede the true purposes of the one God of Israel, whose divine plan Saul and his friends believed were at long last on the verge of glorious fulfillment. Until on the Damascus road, Saul came to believe that these plans had indeed been gloriously fulfilled, but in a way that he had never imagined. This idea is, is really, truly terrifying to me. He was doing these things because he thought he was doing good. And that's something that all of us, like the the hairs on your neck should stand up a little bit because we can do things that perhaps we think are good. And in reality, those things aren't at all what God's calling us to do. As we think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the New Testament, we need to recognize that you and I are never an authority on our faith. That we are always dependent on a living God. And the word that is used to describe a follower of Jesus in the New Testament, we would generally, perhaps if you are a believer, you would define yourself as a Christian. But it's interesting because in the New Testament, the word Christian is actually a term that's used to like kind of poke fun at early followers of Jesus. Because like, why would you follow somebody who died on a cross? It doesn't make any sense. So outside people would call them Christians, but what Jesus refers to followers of him as, and what is then consistently conveyed throughout the New Testament, is disciple or learner. Somebody who is actively at the feet of Jesus. And that, I would argue, should be the barometer for all of us. Like, am I learning from God? Seriously, just ask yourself, did I learn from God this week? Did God help me become a a better husband or a better friend? As I think about, you know, what happened in this last week, did I take some positive steps? Did I change my behavior? Did God lead me in anything? It's a question that we should always be asking. Because religion at its worst is just a set of rules that doesn't impact your actual life and how you treat people. That's why the Pharisees are so dangerous, because they have removed compassion from the equation. They're just like looking at other people as, you know, are you a rule follower or are you not? Perhaps the best example of this is the woman that is caught in adultery found in John chapter 8, which is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. It's one of those moments when the Pharisees do their best to try and trap Jesus in a situation that he has no hope of properly responding This woman is dragged before Jesus, and it says that she is caught. The Greek actually means she is caught in the literal act of adultery. 
And the first question you ask is, where's the dude? Because hold on, hold on. If, if, if like you're able to drag her forth, then like, wait, okay, it takes two to tango. You know, like what, what is going on in this scene? And it's a way that you see that the, the Pharisees, they're just looking for ways to trap Jesus. And they put him in this unbelievably impossible situation. Because the temple courts where this scene is going down is right next to the Praetorium. And the Praetorium was a Roman military base. And Rome basically had said to Jewish believers, you can follow whatever God you want to. Like, it's really not a big deal to us. You can worship your God how you want to, as long as you don't take justice into your own hands as far as to the point of death. So you can do whatever you want. Go ahead, do your little festivals. It's not a big deal. As long as you pay taxes to us and don't kill people, basically, you can do whatever uh, you want. It's not a big deal. But so this scene happens in the temple courts, right next to the Praetorium, which was a Roman military base that was specifically built there, just a few feet higher than the temple, just to show the Jewish believers, yeah, you can worship your God, but just FYI, we're watching, and we're a little bit taller than you are. So the Praetorium is right there. And so Jesus has this moment where he has to decide what he's going to do because Rome has said you can't kill people, you can't just take this into your own hands. And so for Jesus to perhaps choose to do that could have incited all of the Jewish believers who were there. But then there's the other side of this where in the Old Testament, it literally says that if someone is caught in adultery, you can stone that person. So what do you do? This is an impossible situation. What's Jesus to do in this moment? And these are the kinds of things that the Pharisees and the religious leaders are constantly doing to Jesus. What are you going to do? Are you going to side with the Jewish belief and, you know, what the, the scriptures say should happen to this woman? Or are you going to bow down to Rome and not do perhaps what the scriptures say? I love this story because Jesus does something so weird at the beginning when all the, the eyes in this moment are on him and this woman. He bends over and he begins to write on the ground, which is an odd first move. But I think even in that, he's being gracious and generous to her because she's caught in the act of adultery. Who knows how much she's even been able to put herself together in this moment. And I imagine the eyes of that whole room, like whenever I do something weird preaching and I'm off to the side, I, your eyes all come to me and it's like, you know, there's something weird going on. I just imagine as this woman is trying, you know, to put herself together, unsure of what she's trying to do, like Jesus bends over and he starts riding in the sand. So I imagine the eyes of that entire space have come off of her and onto him for just a moment. And then after some time riding in the sand, he gets up and says, well, if anyone's without sin, go ahead and throw a stone. And it says that the old men who are gathered there first begin to leave because it's those who have been around long enough that perhaps are most aware of their own brokenness. They all walk away. I love the scene in The Simpsons that has this, where the two really religious people who are Homer's neighbors, um, he, he says, whoever's without sin can cast the first stone. And then the two boys are like, do you want, do you want to do it first or me? Like, they're just like, oh, we, we, are, we, are, we, we are without sin. But it's such a brilliant thing 
Jesus gets all the eyes of that room onto him. He's riding in the sand, and he just asks that simple question. And everybody knows what should be done. They all begin to walk away. And Jesus then says to her, oh, is everybody gone? Well, I don't condemn you either. I leave this life of sin, and I'm not going to throw a rock. How often does it seem like, especially in our world today, that religious people are just carrying around rocks? Just looking to point out the flaw in somebody else? To treat others without compassion and love? To point out the issue that somebody else has? Because let's be honest, what that does is it makes us feel just a little bit better about ourselves. We know that it's not good, and we know that it's not all that satisfying, but just for a moment, you feel just a little bit better. Well, at least I'm not. And Jesus reminds those who are gathered there and reminds us, think about your own brokenness. Think about the things that you've done. And then treat people with compassion. And what's going to happen if this woman is killed, it's not going to make anything better. It's not going to improve the situation. How often are, are we living from that perspective and not thinking about the brokenness that we have to deal with? The fact that we need an active, loving, living God to rescue us and move in our lives every single day. I know that I've done at times, unchristian things for Christian reasons. Oh, I'm going to get there. The, the ends justify the means. We need to recognize that oftentimes we're at our most dangerous when we're 100% convinced that we're right. We're at our most lethal when we're just willing to do anything because there's a really good result. May we ask ourselves truly what God has for us as we encounter people and recognize that they are people and not some sort of problem. May we lead with compassion. Because let's be honest about what religion in America really is. I think religion in America really is politics with a little side of Jesus. And I've seen Republican Christians who are destroying their witness because of how poorly they treat people. And hold on, let me finish. I've seen Democratic Christians <laughs> who are destroying their witness because of how poorly they've treated people. We are our kingdom-first people, and so if we are going to be kingdom-first people, it starts with us looking at our own hearts and not feeling a little bit better about ourselves by looking at somebody else, perhaps, who's in need of compassion or just obeying some certain things. Like It isn't something that we can just feel a little bit better. We need the active love of a living God every single moment and every single day, and that is what makes us disciples. It's easy to live in such a way 
we treat people as problems and not as people, it's easy to start to believe that God is always on your side or always on my side. In reality, God is on the side of the one who acts in compassion and who chooses to come alongside. I can't help but think of the quote from Mother Teresa that I try to share often. Not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. We want to do good things with our lives. We want to do big things with our lives. And we can't all do like the the huge thing that's going to get headlines. But all of us, every single one of you, all of us tomorrow, even on the way home, we could do small things with great love because it's those things that change the world. And if you consider yourself to be a religious person, again, if you're not, I'm so glad that you're here, that you're listening to this, that you're part of this conversation. But if you consider yourself to be a religious person, may you always recognize that Jesus was killed by religious people. And we always need to have that on our minds, that Jesus was killed by some of the best most religious people of his day, people who we would say were like preachers and elders and leaders of a church, like highly respected religious people, and they missed the whole thing. And this didn't just stop 2,000 years ago. I read a fascinating story this week about a man named Phineas Brazé, who was a part of a Methodist church uh, in this area. And one of the reasons, he was in Los Angeles in the early 1900s, one of the reasons why he left the Methodist church was that the seating in this church in the 1900s, the Methodist church, apparently you used to have, you used to, were seated by how much you gave to the church. So those who like gave a lot were up near the front and then it kind of went back from there to those who, who, who didn't. And like that was the system. It was like that was what it was. And th- that sounds awful. I don't even understand how, how that ever became a thing. But that kind of stuff has become a thing repeatedly in churches where it becomes about, you know, the people who are at, at the front or those who, who are, are gathered. Like, those are the ones who for some reason get better treatment. And so Phineas Brazé in the early 1900s, he started the Church of the Nazarene as a reminder that Jesus was from Nazareth, a nowhere town that as the disciples talk about it, they say, can anything good come from that place? Because this is the God that we follow, and may we never create a religious system that just makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves, looking to others and pointing to their flaws. Because Jesus was killed by some of the best, most religious people of his day, and we are at our most dangerous when we are 100% sure that we're right. Because we always need and depend on a living God. Let's pray. God, once again, we recognize that we depend on you. There are good things that we all do, and we need to keep doing those things to help us pursue you with our lives. But may we recognize that these actions aren't the things that save us. It is you. It is your your living love, your presence, and your being. May we lean into that love May we allow that to transform us forever. And may we be moved from the inside out to be people of compassion who do things all the time with great love. 
because that's the stuff that changes the world. May we be your disciples, starting right now. Your son, Jesus, and I pray, amen.